Welcome to the Competitive 40K Podcast, brought to you by Vanguard Tactics, 40K Codex Analysis, List Building, Strategy Development, Game Theory, Mentoring. Our mission, to help you become a better player and to raise the level of the game both on and off the tabletop. Here's your host, Stephen Box. Hey, and welcome to the Competitive 40K Podcast. This is episode number nine. So welcome back. Um, And I really hope you enjoyed last week's episode where we had a a moose-boose of guests on, really. Um, And it was fantastic, though, to get so many people involved talking about the Orc Codex. So today uh, we've got a little bit of a different uh, show lined up for you. We're going to be talking about team events. Now, I've been recently coaching one of the teams down under in Australia, and I was helping them um, get ready for the Western Australian Team Championships, in which this team team was the winner. Uh, so very, very proud to bring these guys on. And I'm joined by the captain and um, also the sort of vice captain, as it were. So we've got Pete coming on the show and also Lockie. Now, both Pete and Lockie are experts at the game. They are absolutely fantastic. And I really can't um, you know, stress enough their knowledge of the game and just overall mindset towards team events. So um, we're going to go into this interview t- today. Uh, so if you're interested in more about team events, then you're going to really enjoy this one. If you are not, no doubt considering teams or getting to the end of this show, you're going to want to be putting your own team together, finding team events to go to. Um, we talk about the pairings. Is pairings is a really massive part of the uh, team aspect. It's a kind of game inside the actual or pre-game game, which is absolutely fascinating, but really bringing people together in terms of community is what 40k is all about. And the team events are definitely one way to do that. So again, I really hope you enjoy this episode and we're going to go over to the interview now with Pete and Lockie. See you in a minute. Hello, Pete and Lockie. How are you guys doing? Pete, how are you? Excellent. Dave, yourself? Yes, I'm doing very, very well. Thanks. And Lockie? Great. Not too bad. I mean... That is enthusiasm right there. (laughs) No, it's a serious pleasure to have you both on the show. Um, As I think today we've got just a really interesting topic um, when we talk about team events, um, team events and uh, playing in teams, what it takes to make a team and then obviously become extremely successful with the team as you guys have shown year after year. Um, Because am I right, Pete, that you guys have, or you've won the, uh, Western Australian team championships for the sixth year in a row now. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, we've managed it now six from six, which has been pretty good. Um, I think Lockie's been on the podium every time as well um, since he started playing um, competitively three years ago. Yeah, it's about three, four years ago now. Um, so yeah, we've always been uh, always been on uh, or in and around each other's teams. I mean, it helps when you've got a really good playing group of friends that uh, that's able to get together and play in these kinds of events. Yes. Awesome. And, you know, great to see your success because I obviously, um, you know, was a little bit involved with last year with your team, but then a little bit more this year, which has been, you know, just great fun conversing with you guys, going over all your lists. And that's kind of where um, I, you know, really geeked out is making sure that all your lists were. um, And I think um, making sure that each player knew exactly what their capabilities of their list were. But anyway, before we get into all that good stuff, um, I want to find out a little bit more about you two. And obviously for the listeners, they need to find out who are uh, Pete and Lockie. So Lockie, we'll start with you, mate. So obviously, I don't know if I'm right by hearing this. Are you the number one ranked Australian player at the moment, by any chance? 
Uh, yeah, I'm down in the pairings, um, which is what you use mostly in Australia for events, recording them, <laughs> rather than Best Coast pairings. Um, I'm number one ranked currently. However, it must be taken into account that half Australia is in lockdown for the last, what, four or three months, so... Yeah, we don't need to talk about that. more fortunate occasion to have more events. We don't need to talk about that. Yeah. So anyway, um, <laughs> and Lockie, what have you been, um, give us a little bit of background. How did you get into sort of 40K um, and, and why did you kind of go down more the sort of competitive track and what, what's the real appeal for you with it? Right. Um, well, I actually started playing Lord of the Rings about six, seven years ago and then got dragged into playing Versus Edge of Sigma and then playing 40K because a mate told me to by the armies. <laughs> and then uh, just jumped into a tournament one day, uh, the way Masters, um, and came fifth, and I thought that's pretty fun. And that was about three and a half, four years ago now. So ever since then, I've been pretty involved in the competitive scene in Western Australia playing 40K. Nice. And uh, what about you, Pete? What kind of brought you into the game? Oh, I, um, I got into the hobby uh, with my cousin back in the late 90s. Um, started playing competitively probably about 2008 and then the real probably um, uh, hunger I suppose in terms of the competitive scene was getting to play my first um, Australian team championship and um, European team championship in 2014. Um, had Got to meet some really cool people in WA, got to go across, it was in Queensland that year and then got to meet some really cool people from the other states over there. Uh, primarily Josh Diffie, who was really coordinating things on the Oz scene at the time. And then it's kind of all, all gone from there uh, seven odd years ago. And you were the, because you were the captain, weren't you, of the Australian team when I met you, when I was the United Nations captain? Yeah, in 2019. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we had a we had a good old uh, chuckle at the back of that event. And that was a, you know, I think, so, so when you and I really bonded, I felt, mate, you know? Well, making sure that uh, everyone at the event's eligible to podium is always a pretty good place to start, I think. <laughs> Yeah, because there was a bit of a vote, wasn't there, going around whether the United Nations team, which is basically a, um, we're, we're there to make up even numbers, aren't we? Let's, let's put it how it is. That's what the United Nations team is. Um, I was, I put my name in the hat. I got selected as captain by my team. Um, and I remember that, you know, we still had to pay for our tickets and everything else, go over there. And then when I heard some of the, um, the votes going and talking about that, the United Nations team, should they be allowed to podium? I was like, this is a joke. If you're worried that a a team with one month's practice, um, could actually podium, then it says a lot about, I think the, um, and I think you shared the exact same sentiment, wasn't it? I can't remember what your message was, but oh, I, uh, I'll, st- I'll still stand by it to this day. You know, if, if you're concerned that your team that's supposed to be the best your country has to offer is going to get beaten by, um, you know, again, with all due respect, essentially a scratch team, um, you've probably got bigger issues in your own backyard and, um, you should probably be tipping your hat to them and, uh, asking them for some advice. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I was, you know, I felt, I felt pretty strongly about that at the time. So anyway, um, and, and again, I think that's when we really kind of hit it off as we shared a lot of the same ethos and you've obviously got a background in, um, extreme sort of serious sport when it comes to rowing and, you know, me with these sort of different accolades I've had. So, um, you know, I think between the, in Lachlan, am I right? You or Lockie, should I say, um, what sort of sports are you involved with at the moment outside of 40k? At the moment, um, I play Australian rules football, I play basketball, I play cricket, I play um, volleyball and also netball on a regular basis. So 
pretty involved in community and social sports. Yeah, and I, and I think that's kind of what we all share, isn't it? Is that sort of sportsmanship, fair play, and just kind of um, but playing firm but fair. And that's exactly how we want to play the game. And I think that's probably why all three of us have this kind of real passion for team events because it's always been something that we've done in the past. So anyway, less about all that. Let's talk about teams. Let's talk about Team um, 40K. Pete, what's it for you that is the the draw to a team event rather than singles? What What's the sort of difference between the two and what really gets you so excited about it? Well, I mean, look, so it's uh, 40K team is, is unique in the sense, I mean, it's almost a lot like Davis Cup tennis. You are still responsible for your own game. But whereas you go to a singles event, um, you are at the mercy of, of what the meta is and, and what else is there. If you're, you know, if you're expecting to be on top tables at the moment, let's be real, there's there's a lot of admec, there's a lot of Dark Elder, you know, floating around, and you know, losing a game can can potentially lose you a chance at you know podium at the entire tournament. Whereas in a team event, you know, you go into you go into the wrong matchup, you know, one point out of a out of a completely red you know matchup that everyone would be expecting to get completely floored on um, is is a net win, and you know. Obviously, everyone talks about well, which points the the most important. You know, converting it to twenty zip scoring. You know, out of either one hundred and sixty or one hundred and twenty points for you know eight or six player events. You know, out of the the eighty six or sixty six points you need to win the round, which one's the most important? And obviously, the answer is is all of them because you know one point more and you win instead of drawing, one point less and you lose instead of drawing. Um, sorry, sorry, Pete, just to jump in there, um, you mentioned something about a twenty zip now. In terms of obviously 40k, for most people out there, they might not have ever been familiar with this sort of 20 zero system. So obviously in a normal game of 40k, you're, you still play to 100 points, don't you? In terms of each. Uh, so each game is 100 points, isn't it? And then yep. there's a difference that you work out and that gives you a score between zero up to 20. Yeah. That's you- correct. Yeah. We're using the WTC chart that was um, come up with by by Tom Neal and Isaac. So how do you get a 20 nil? So that's the, obviously the most you could possibly score. And then a draw would be a 10, 10. So that's correct. What are, what are some of the parameters there to, to score these points? Uh, 10, 10 is a differential of zero to five points. And then I believe it goes up in five point increments. 20 zip is 50 plus. Is that right, Lucky? Uh, yes. So 51, I believe is 20 zero. So you have to be more than six points. So if you are, uh, I think it would be, if you are say 53 to, 47, I think it's still a 10 10 draw. For example, it's the six point over. So that's 11, 6, 11, 16, 21, et cetera. I think that's how it goes on. So essentially, a sort of five point increment stage gives you the difference of, uh, you know, in getting you between anywhere from zero points up to 20 points between that pairing. And obviously, in this event, how many players were in your team, Pete? Uh, teams of six. Teams are six. So the maximum your team could score was 120. And that was kind of what you're referring to. Yep. And in order to beat you, the other team, you need to score 86. Is that right? Out of 120? Uh, 66 points? in six, man. Yep. 66. So in order for you to convincingly win, you need to score 66 points. Okay, cool. All right, nice. So sorry to interrupt there, but I thought it'd be really crucial at that stage just to kind oh, of yeah, 100%. Bring, it, bring it back in uh, for people to kind of get a good consideration. So as far as I'm right then, Pete, you were mentioning about how, let's say there's a really bad matchup, um, but obviously even if you can just get a few points against it, can really help go towards that sort of 66 points, isn't it? Yeah, look, definitely. Every, everyone will have done their matchups in, in the meantime. Obviously, both teams sitting across from each other trying to work out, 
how they are best going to reach that total. Um, obviously, some teams are trying to like thread the needle down the middle and hope for you know sort of six, eleven, nine wins. Um, some teams are going to be expecting different armies to do different things. Um, you know, off the back of those matchups, you should have an idea of, of who's going to need to play more conservatively and who's going to need to push. But when you really get a matchup that's just absolutely terrible, if you can pull points out of that game, even if you lose the game, you've still potentially helped win the round for your team. Yeah, nice. So, um, Lockie, what sort of mindset do you need as a team player compared to, let's say, a singles player? Well, it's not always. So in a singles event, if you're going to lose, sometimes you just throw on the towel, more or less. You just play the risky style. You play, so either you throw on the towel or you go hard to the riskiest place possible to pull off a win. In a team setting, sometimes you know your predictor score, you know what your team needs, your team might need you to get, so for example, a six. Um, even though you're going into the loss, it's a six out of um, 20 points, which means you're losing by 20 plus points. At that point, what you're going to do is you need to stay in the race, not get annihilated, play defensively, to get points. And then if you come to your team later on and say, I look on my six points, everyone's happy for you because you've done your team role. Yeah, that's a really key thing in teams. So really what you're saying then is um, is to kind of fight for every point, isn't it? That's the mindset rather than just conceding early or whatever. Um, and do you think that there's, because sometimes in singles, I've, I've certainly been in a situation where I don't, if I know I'm going to lose, I don't care what my opponent scores. I just let them max out in, in a way because I don't want to um, do anything risky on my side because all, all I want to do is score as many points as I can um, in a singles event, because if I know I'm losing, all I'm looking to do is get the most amount of points possible for my uh, for the leaderboard. Now, if my opponent's going to beat me, what I don't want to do is like get overly aggressive at the table in terms of you know overextend myself to try and deny them points. If then it's going to you know potentially inhibit my ability to score. But Lockie, obviously with a team, are you still trying to play defensively, but still try and deny as many points because you're trying yes. to? It's a parameter that you're trying to bring in, isn't it? Yeah, so it's more the differential rather than the maxing scores. So if you can have a close game at, um, say, 50 points or 70 points, that's more important than trying to race to yourself 60 points, but they get 90. So you want to restrict scoring. So a lot of lists are built on that basis of, I can restrict scoring, I only give away this much points. I can stop this. When we look at pairings, it's, hey, we all got smoked. So half our lists get smoked bad, mech. But this one's better at not getting smoked. <laughs> yeah. Or can take the most points off it, right? Yep. Um, which I really like because I think there's there's certainly a skill set in terms of development there, um, where you know first of all, when, like when I first start coaching people, it's all about helping them just score points on the primary. Then it's about helping them score points on the secondary, and then after they've sort of accomplished those two things, it's actually then helping people deny points on the primary, and then finally denying points on the secondary. And that's like um, a different skill set that you build upon within each layer. So really in a team event, you need to be, have that full skill set of being able to not only score your primary and secondary, but also know how to deny those primary and secondary, which I think is a really nice element to teams. Um, because like you said, Lockie, it's all about the differential and not giving up too much, which is awesome. Okay. So, um, Pete, you mentioned you've got six players in a team. Now give, what's the rules in terms of a team event? Not like the sort of the minutia, but the sort of general outline of a team event. Give us the overall do you mean in terms of how it's formatted, how um, how we formed a team? I, I want to know like the, yeah. So for example, like 
factions that you can take um and then finally yeah how do you form your team as well you can sort of go on to that after yeah so what's the yeah, general cool, cool. rules of the event yeah uh, look every codex can be used once um and obviously and only once um your normal army um in that is then uh, picked uh the way you would normally select a list you know three detachments um so on and so forth um, but you know you can't be doubling up, and it, it's it gets a little bit crazier than when you start looking at you know if one player um, you know had Chaos Marines and another player had Death Guard, um, they both could not then be using demons to summon, for example. Um, again, just one codex per player. Um, but one um, once a codex is used, it can't be used again. Is probably what I'm trying to say best. Um, in terms of picking the team, um, I mean we're quite lucky, uh, Lockie and myself, where we've got. Uh, quite a large friend group, uh, friend group that all play tournaments together. So, you know, we really sort of looked at the pool of players. Um, we were like pre-lockdowns, pre-everything that sort of happened in Australia with the Delta wave of COVID. Um, we were expecting a few teams to come over from the East Coast. Um, so we kind of formed the, the two teams that we thought were going to be able to best um, well, best represent um, sort of our playing group and obviously do the best in WA as well. Um, and obviously looking at, at, at who was going to pilot what. You know, I know for us, Admech was a must-have, so having someone that was was comfortable piloting them um, and then going through and, and looking at the, the six list that we thought we were going to be able to pair uh, pair the best into the other teams. So you, you kind of, from what I've gathered there, you've really, you know, you can only use a codex once as a team, and that also includes things like if one person takes an assassin, nobody else can take an assassin. That would be the same for if one person used an inquisitor, nobody else could. Um, yeah. So then you've obviously analysed, you know, Admech, they're key. They're obviously dominant. So one player is going to be using Admech. Um, and then also you mentioned Drakari earlier. So, um, Lockie, what were the other factions that you considered when it comes to these kind of have to be in our top six? Now, do you do that based on what you felt was the strength of the codex? Did you do that based on the strength of the players that you had? Or did you do that as like, a, okay, we're expecting to see a lot of Admech and a lot of Drakari. So can we tech to against them specifically? And we'll take the factions that play really well into them. So I'm really interested to find out a little bit more from you, Lockie, about your um, faction selection and who played what and why. Um, well, it was a little bit of factoring against Drakari and Admech. But for the most part, it was picking the well, for us, picking the best six codecs we thought we could pilot with each player. Um, and therefore, we trusted each one of our players to pick their best codex they could play and, with our guidance, pick their best list. Uh, we weren't saying anyone had to play a certain codex no matter what. However, there was a strict enforcement. We must have a Drakari and must have an Admech. And the next set of pool of our lists, Sisters are up there, Custodes were up there, and we end up late switching um, from Chaos Soup to Thousand Zones and switching from Death Watch to Grey Knights. Uh, after we did a few, uh, two or three weeks of trialing, uh, we found they were pretty, um, pretty handy lists, and our players playing them preferred them over their previous lists. So we based from that. We took Custodes because Custodes, um, the list we had built, was tailored to um, take on and beat Drakari. Um, and doesn't do too bad into Admech. Pete was all Custodes pilot. I think you played Jakari tw twice. Is that right, Pete? Uh, in the, at the actual event, I think we only got him once in the end. Once? Okay. And then Admech once as well. We were able to, yeah, once into Admech, yeah. Yeah, so we managed to draw the Admech and was it a, a win to the Jakari? 
Yeah, fifteen five against Drakari and ten ten against Admec. Yeah, and which boy wanted like to list that means their best list can beat, which is fantastic to be honest. Uh, then uh, obviously our Drakari and our uh, Admec themselves are just used to bully matchups and just go out there and get their twenty wins. Nice. Yeah. So you, what what I've kind of gathered there is you've you've thought right these are some top codexes now let's actually put that to our player base and get our players playing the best the codexes that they're going to be able to run the best rather than just saying here's an amazing list you have to run it and they could be maybe not the best pilot with it maybe not have the passion for that list or even the know-how so actually sometimes you're better off running a maybe slightly less optimal list i think anyway um if you've got a player that knows that book inside out because they'll probably perform better because they'll know their matchups uh, a lot more and this comes back to something Pete mentioned earlier about um, knowing your matchup so Pete when it comes to um, you know you've got six players the other team's got six players you rock up and you're against another team there's something that happens first which is the pairings isn't it yep that's correct can you explain how the pairings works to me yeah cool cool um so it's it's a condensed version of the of the of the system that's used at WTC so long story short, you've basically each got your, call it your six players in hand. Um, both of you will put up an army in secret. Um, you will then counter each other's armies with two different armies, again, in secret. They get flipped over. Um, the put-up player picks which of the two offered lists they want to fight against, and then the unselected goes back into the hand. That forms the first two games. Um, that put-up process is repeated. Um, and the difference being, obviously, you counter with um, with two players. Um, obviously, two two bit two lists get picked again, and so that's the first four games done. And for the final two games, the unselected card from the second uh, second round um, plays the unoffered, as in the army that was never put up in the first place. Um, there's probably a really good graphic that explains that um, a little bit more on paper uh, for those that are visual. But um, we that that last sort of four player process we always refer to over here at least as the flop. The flop, I love it. Yeah, nice. So let's little bit of role play there. So let's say I'm against you, Pete, and I'm like, right, game one. Who am I going to put forward? So I'm looking at my six players and I'm thinking I probably want an army that can you know do well against anything. Now, also um, one thing to probably mention is this still correct that the player who's put forward first of all gets to pick the table they want to play on is that correct that is correct so there's a different you know different tables have different amounts of terrain on from heavy to light so obviously if you're putting an army in forward they obviously get to pick against one of the two incoming offerings from your opponent yep so let, so who was i don't know give me one of your um put forwards well a, a great example is even the sisters list that we built um that, that Lockie built for this event um, wasn't running transports because we were always going to use him as either first or second put up, which meant that he always had control of what table he played on. Okay, so you you secretly, you know, put forward sisters, right? Yep. And then I might, from my team, secretly put forward, I don't know, Tau, for example. Then we then reveal at the same time, and I'm like, oh, okay, they've put forward sisters, and you go, oh, they've put forward Tau. And then obviously you would then put two of your, because obviously you've then got five cards left in your hand, haven't you? Yep. You would then put two armies into my Tau, and I know, who would you put into Tau, for example, out of your team? So this is uh, this is where there's a few differences of opinions in terms of just matchup theory. Um, so a really 
a good example is a lot of people pairing for the first time will automatically try and secure a big win. So again, say, for example, they tried to pair, I mean, the two best books are Admech and Drakari. So if they paired with both of those, obviously the Tau player takes one of them. And you, but, I mean, you'd assume at that point that the Tau player is probably going to lose the game given that matchup. Uh, no offense to the Tau players out there. Um, now, the reality of that situation, I feel that's a fundamental mistake because you've just basically given one of your best two books away or best two lists away um, for for a return that they're probably going to get against any other matchup anyway. So I'd be looking at um, we we have quite a quite a detailed um, scoring sheet. So as a rule of thumb, um, myself and the other guys that have that have played for WA before, we score against every single list from every single team. We then also have software that's been written by my brother-in-law that, that helps in terms of looking at what the ideal round looks like and runs that sort of algorithm in the background. Um, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to take the matchup that actually sets the rest of the team up for the best average scores across the board. Nice. No, I really like that. So you might think, okay, actually, our Thousand Sons, maybe the Thousand Sons into all the other, other armies might not be great, but they could get a nice little win against the Tau here um, yep. because a lot of Tau damage is won. The Thousand Sons would get their plus one save a lot. There's a lot of mortal wounds that the Tau, you know, can't really do much against. So actually that might be a nice place to go, okay, we'll put the Thousand Sons into that game and then also maybe another list. And then I can choose then as the defender, as the Tau player, do I want to play against the Thousand Sons or that other army that you've played up against me? So I just thought we could do that little bit of role play there. So, right, Lockie, you're the Sisters player. You put forward your first defender. Who were people sort of playing into you um, as, a, as an example? And why would you then choose the the opponent you wanted? I'd, I'd be really interested to find out some of your mindset behind that. So give me an example of maybe a couple of lists that people would put up, up against you. Right. Um, well, so I was put up pretty much first, I think, three of the times and second the other times. Yep. And pretty much universally, they put up either Admec or Drakari, or sometimes Admec and Drakari into me hoping to either stop me from scoring big or I don't know what their all motivations were there. But the whole thing was I would just take um, either one of the lists, whichever was probably best for the team. Uh, this would often mean I'd be running into Jakari. I've had Jakari, I think, three or four times in the event. And I would just get a small win against them because my list is uh, entirely Bloody Rose trading list with no transports, max efficiency for damage. And I can just trade more efficiently into Jakari and play their game better than they play it. So the whole thing was I take off one of their best armies for the team, so that makes everyone else have better pairings. So we don't have to worry about Jakari or Admech later on. Nice. I really like yeah, I really like the sound of that. Yeah, good. So rather than getting just hungry for a big win, what you're deciding to do there is go, no, I'll take the tough matchup. And I'm just going to score as many points as I possibly can. And if I can get a slight win, then it just makes the rest of the team's uh, pairings a little bit easier, doesn't it? Which I, I think is awesome. Yeah, nice. So we've, we spoke about what factions you played. Um, we've spoke about how you sort of selected your team. Um, so when it comes to the lists, right, the lists themselves, so more in the sort of preparation phases, what are you considering? You know, do you have a, like a mindset? Um, and I'll, I'll put this question to you, Pete, first. So 
When it comes to your overall list design, do you have somebody that you think, right, this is going to be a defender that's going to play defensively, or this is going to be a list that we're going to push really aggressively? Or do you just think, okay, we want really balanced options? So what's your kind of mindset behind the list? Because obviously you can essentially dodge matchups. You can pick and choose matchups to a degree, can't you, with this? So what was some of your mindset behind list design? Yeah, definitely. Look, I think uh, before before we even got to that point of the table for starters, and it actually loops back into what you were saying earlier in terms of like working as a team in a competitive setting. Obviously, sports is a great example, but um, I mean, even just down to down to Codex choice, like we had two players that were prepared and and had both the 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 time and and the financial capacity to jump onto New Army's very short period in the form of you know the Thousand Suns and Grey Knights players on our team, Mitch and Craig. Um, you know, uh, Andrew, um, and I hope he doesn't mind me sort of paraphrasing here, but, you know, he felt a little bit burnt out with some of the competitive lists because, I mean, we've been gearing up for a national team championship um, and a world team championship now for, you know, two years that, that haven't happened. So everyone's a little bit burnt out by kind of being on and redlining the whole time, you know, for these events that, that have been cancelled a few times. So Andy was a little bit burnt out innovating and innovating. So we pivoted him onto the AdMech, just saying, look, here's an opportunity for you to just go and just basically just go and smash because obviously AdMech are very good. Um, even myself and Lockie, like I've been working on sisters most of the year, but with a, a newborn baby in the house, it was like, look, I'm not going to get my models built and painted. I'm not going to practice a list with this number of models effectively. So Lockie and I swapped codexes you know, about a month out from list submission just by being realistic and saying, look, Lockie, yes, you know the custodes very well. I can pick up the custodes, you can pivot onto the sisters and we're going to get a better overall result for the team. Um, and so that that was really important too because, um, I mean, on the day with the amount of prep that, that had to be done, um, I, I wouldn't have been able to do to produce what Lockie produced um, with with the sisters list. Um, given given everything else going on in the background. So then from there, once we were relatively set, um, as Lockie said earlier, the six books that we wanted to take were locked in um, based on the WA meta, based on what we were comfortable with, based on models and, and sort of we looked at it relatively holistically and then we really zoned in. We designed around lists that were definitely going to need table pick. So my number one um, question a lot of times was who needs to pick table? Um, the custode list did not really. Um, the uh, Thousand Suns list either did or didn't, and that's why, again, you pair for every single team. Um, and particularly, like, you know, the, the, the expected top teams, you at that point start specifically pairing them for, for the missions as well. You know, you're expecting to come up against them round four, round five at the tail end of the tournament. So you do the extra pairings, you do the extra legwork to prepare for them, um, if that actually answers the question. Yeah, nice. No, I, th- I think that's uh, yeah, really good in terms of how you're looking at mission design. You're looking at, or, or not mission design, but you're looking at the missions. Um, you're looking at kind of, like you said, the layout of the table and then having a an idea of, okay, maybe we need to tweak this list so it can handle that mission or we can, hand- we can tailor this list to be a little bit more aggressive. Like you said, with Lockie's list there with the sisters, as long as Lockie gets to pick the table, he can, he doesn't need to take all the transports like I had to take for the LGT (laughs) because obviously, um, you know, you can pick the table uh, and you, you can sort of set the, you can pick the game state as it were that you play on, which I think is fantastic. Um, Yeah. Nice. Awesome. I think, I think we've covered so many of these. Um, We've covered who you put, you've, you've kind of like 
nailed all my questions that I've already got. Um, <laughs> so, uh, okay. Here's a question for you then. Did you ever have to throw anybody under the bus and how do you go about doing that? So first of all, what is throwing someone under the bus? Um, and then I want to know, um, sort of between you guys. So Lockie, did you, um, what is the term sort of throwing someone under the bus? Throwing someone under the bus more or less means, oh, another euphemism would be throwing them to the wolves. You're basically giving them a loss. They're going to get smashed. They're going to have to bite it. Better luck next time kind of thing. So you're giving them a bad matchup. Hopefully the ultimate aim being that the rest of the team gets better matchups for it. So that they may pair into the opponent's team horribly and they may only have like one win or a couple close wins. You're thinking there's almost no way we can pair that right. So we're just going to pair them into a big loss that's going to get the best result for the rest of the team members. And so they're just going to have to scrounge and get a few points as they can. And did we have to throw anyone under the bus? Uh, yeah, regularly. Um, pretty much one person would get thrown under the bus. Maybe once a pairing, maybe every second pairing. Fortunately, with our experience in pairings, uh, we had we outpaired most of our opponents. So there wasn't too much of an issue there. But coming to the end rounds and we're playing the other top teams, there certainly was an aspect of people getting thrown under the bus. Or at least th- thrown into greens, thrown into um, close losses or small losses where previously in the early rounds we could pair accordingly and have everyone basically getting almost a guaranteed win. Nice. So, in Pete, how would you um, decide in terms of an, a, a person, okay, I'm going to throw this person under the bus, and what sort of conversation do you have to have with them? Because it's not nice, right, when you think, oh, great, I'm getting, you know, kind of, yeah, like I said, thrown to the wolves here. How would you as a captain, Pete, uh, sort of have that conversation with a player? Um, look, at, at WTC, and I suppose the, the more interesting thing, like even from a leadership point of view, is is that, you know, stuff gets shared around. You know, Lockie, Lockie was captain of WATC this year as an example. Um, obviously, when I captained at WTC, a lot of, a lot of the pairings was really been driven by uh, Eric Lathuris and um, Jeremy Martino, old mate Marigold, as we call him. Um, but, I mean, ultimately... Uh, one of the big takeouts, even in terms of how, like you know, how we score at a at a at a world's level, at a national level, has always been that no one's allowed to put zeros and no one's allowed to put twenties. The highest, you know, the highest we put into the spreadsheet is an eighteen, and the lowest we put into the spreadsheet is a two. Idea being that, yeah, I mean, even if you two, like we we would hope that all of the players on our team are able to scrap for at least two points, and by not putting an eighteen, one. It, it keeps your pairings process slightly more conservative, as in stops you from um, stops anything from blowing out. I.e., you know, predicting a twenty, and if it only comes back as a seventeen, that could cost you the round. Um, but then, in theory, obviously, that should engineer some fat as uh, as players go out and smash those twenties. Um, in terms of the under the bus, you know, concept, um, I think we managed it pretty well this year. Like strength of schedules, a really interesting one to look at at the end of a tournament. Um, but I mean, particularly a team tournament. Um, I think different lists, you know, ultimately had it better or worse. And, and hindsight's always twenty twenty. Um, like, you know, even I think we were maybe a little bit conservative with holding our sisters list back a little bit um, at times. But at the end of the day, you don't really see that until you zoom out and look at the bigger picture post-event. Um, so, you know, overall as a team, um, you know, I was pretty pretty happy with how everyone – Everyone took their matchups. Lockie and I did um, did a lot of the pairing this year, um, along with with Nick, who was running as our coach, um, 
and yeah, at the end of every round, I, th- I think we were reasonably happy with with how we'd gone. Um, with in terms of pre round and post round, I think overall we, we we can say we're pretty happy. Nice. Now, was there any um, surprises from the events, like from you know maybe some of the lists that you took and you thought actually that performed a lot better than we expected, um, or actually that performed a lot worse than we expected? So, was there any surprises from the event, Lockie? Uh, yeah, our Thousand Sons list um, and player Mitch Byrne uh, performed much better than we expected. He kept on a regular basis not getting his predicted score because he kept smashing his opponents, which is a happy accident, I guess. He'd predict 12 to 14 and then get a 20, 12 to 14, and then get a 20, 12 to 14, and then get a 20. Um, as he got paired into harder opponents later on, some of the um, admec, I think, he didn't quite get those scores, but... Um, Definitely early on, uh, he was seeing some surprising big results. He ended up, I think, with five wins for the de- for the um, so five out of five for himself, which is a pretty good result. Taking um, what many, at least at the time, were considering a not a great codex, which obviously recent results, Thousand Suns is definitely looking like a decent codex these days. But um, this is uh, the event was only, I think, three weeks. Uh, after the codex drops, everyone at the time was pretty unfamiliar and not uh, sure where it was sitting in the meta. And other than that, um, our Drakari player um, didn't go as well as he hoped. I think after the event, he thought he took he took six Kronos, thought he needed to take three Kronos, and the lack of shooting kind of um, put him at a disadvantage sometimes. So he didn't quite get the results he wanted. And um, But everyone else got... Thereabouts what they expected. Um, didn't see any massive surprises. I mean, we're all pretty familiar with our lists and how to pair. So everyone for most of the pairings was pretty on the ball. Like I might say predict a 12, get a 13, or get 11. So you're still in your ballpark. It's As long as you're reliable, that's the key important thing for teams because you score around based on your predicted score. So you want to be close to it. Nice. So... Pete, was there any, because obviously sometimes in teams you can get some really skew lists. And what we mean by skew is like maybe a list that you would never see in a singles tournament because it's, um, because they don't obviously have that luxury of dodging matchups. Was there any lists out there from any of the other teams and you thought, wow, that is a heavy skew sort of, I want to find out like the strangest list. There was some interesting, um, I mean, look, the one that comes to mind um, in the final, the team that we played off against, Ben Leeper uh, was running an Orc Cars list um, that wrong-footed a lot of people. So both Ben and another player, Adam Batista in WA, have been playing around with these car lists. Adam ended up taking Thousand Suns to the event. He was on another team again. But um, yeah, Ben's cars were were definitely one that I think wrong-footed a lot of people. Um, Orcs in general, just because the book was so new. So again, another ATC player, Courtney Hill, was running a pretty cool Orc list. Um, with some janky killer cans in there as well, which, again, uh, were definitely, definitely surprising people. Um, outside of that, uh, Six Players is an interesting one because particularly up at, you know, the, the teams that are going in there with the, the objective of podiuming at the event, um, I don't really think have much of a choice other than to play it safe. And when you sit there, I mean, for us this year, we really, as Lockie said earlier, you know, once you ticked off, you know, Admech, Drakari and... Um, and, and I mean, I think Sisters were definitely up there as well. And you go, well, those three books, I mean, that's half the team already. So with the remaining three three books, we went for lists that were safe. Um, you know, with our Custode list, uh, could Death Guard or, or the Ultramarine Dreadnought list, could they have filled a similar role? Like maybe, but 
the custodes were, were ultimately what we felt at the time was a safer choice and I think we'd take them again. Just one thing to add as well there. Um, so we had two teams at the events. We had our, our team and our other team or B team, second team, whatever you want to call it. Uh, one of our players in that took a very ski list. He took, I don't know how many melters, but it was an ungodly amount. Oh, he Aiden's took list, yeah. Aiden's list had a couple of units of aggressors, so lots of flamers. And then everything else had a melter attached under the top, over the top, around the side, up the bend. He had that many melters and he just ran into lists and just, it was designed to murder Admech and it released the one time he got Admech, he did. So um, that was a really skewed list where he may not do super well in singles, but anytime he plays any mech armies, they uh, are going down really hard. Yeah, nice. Because that, that's sometimes quite the fun, isn't it? It's when you get your pairing you want. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's really an interesting one where obviously you get to that end of the pairings where you've kind of got, like you said, um, there's a bit, a bit of a champion list, isn't it? The person that you don't put forward as a defender and you don't play them into an attacker and they're never a rejected person, but they just happen to be on the end. So who do you keep, Pete, for that player? Do you, is that like a list you think this is a take all comers, this could smash whatever, um, or we think that the player playing this will be able to get a good result out of whatever. So what's your mindset behind that that final pairing, that person that you know you just kind of put in the pocket at the very end and will play against whoever theirs is? How do you um, go about organising that? We were looking at trying to hold either one of the power books um, – Again, sorry, everyone's probably sick of hearing me say um, Admec and Drakari, but either one of the power books or, you know, I don't think we held sisters at all because um, I think, yeah, we almost always used Lockie as first or second put up. But, you know, sisters in that scenario, once the bad matchups are off the table, our Thousand Sons fell into that role quite a lot. Um, Mitch, Mitch is a very good player um, and, and very agile, very adaptive. Um, so I suppose the players that are able to be, uh, that are able to play reactive, obviously it can wrong foot people, um, and obviously that, and lists that just don't, lists that just don't care, like obviously to a degree, like custodes with just you know inbuilt, you know two up and you know three up and four up invulnerable save or two up armor and three up and four up invulnerable saves, really don't don't care in some cases. So you know when you don't need to care about the table, um, and obviously this is also where you know you'll try and. When you're looking at that bigger picture, which is, as I said, what our software is, is you know, part of what our software does for us is you go, right, well, if you're shaping up towards that ideal picture at the end, what do you need to get rid of early so that that, that ends up happening and obviously increasing your percentages? Yeah, nice. No, it's, it's, it's a really interesting one because I think the pairings is, it's a game in itself, isn't it? It's really, if you get that wrong, it doesn't matter really what happens at the table because you just ended up in bad matchups time after time. So I think there's a huge amount of skill there. Um, and that was one thing I kind of really wanted to do when I came in, we had our uh, discord chat. We're just making sure that every player on your team really knew their list inside out. They understood their good, their bad matchups. They know what secondaries they're going to take on every single mission. Um, knowing that they've got, you know, an idea and a mission plan in mind, because I think sometimes the teams that I've been a part of in the past, you get players that a little bit too sort of cocksure, a little bit too confident. Oh yeah, I'll get a 20 nil here. And actually they just really have not given the appreciation to their opponent that they truly deserve. Um, is that something that you've, you know, you felt like you've learned over time, the more you've been involved with things, Lockie, to be a little bit more conservative about, um, you know, how you analyze an opponent's list? Uh, definitely. Um, 
think it was a running joke the first time I played on the ATC team that I'll put everyone as a 20. Um, I was playing a broken codex at the time, so that kind of makes sense. But um, yeah, no, you're more, much more conservative as time's going. You need to consider your opponent, what they're going to do, especially with the secondary picks and how the games change from 8th and 9th, 40k. You now need to build your army, consider how you can score. I like to build armies that you know you can score at least 70 points. So you have a set score on point. You don't score less than this. But you can score more depending on your opponent. And you can also restrict scoring, so you need to know where you're going to score beforehand. And when you're going into the matchups, pairing yourself, it's heavily dependent on you definitely don't want to... You're going to let your team down. If you say you want to get a 20 or an 18 or something and you've only got a 12, all you've done is let your team down. So you just do not want to do that at all. Yeah, nice. And I think... Um Pete, do you think, obviously, aside from Jakari and, you know, Admech, um, do you think the game's a lot more diverse than it's been before in terms of teams? Um, Because I can mean, I can remember back to our WT, uh, when we last played in the WTC together, I could literally list the top eight teams now. It would be, you'd have a Tau player, uh, there'd probably be a Knights, there'd be a Blood Angel and Guard combo, there would be a Death Watch, there would be a... um, like sort of Drakari, just basically Talos build, Prophets of Flesh list. And then you've probably got some Eldar, Eldar planes. That was probably the eight lists roughly that we saw on every single table. So do you think the game's a lot more diverse now? Yeah, look, definitely. And I mean, even without picking on the power books, you look at the top three teams all had, um, the top three teams all had a, a Drakari list and an Admech list, and all three teams had different versions of those lists. So even within that, it's it's super super healthy. Um, there's more opportunity. I mean, there was a big running joke about you know about our custode list, particularly with um, you know input from some of our friends on the other side of the country that were just going, "Oh, what are you taking the custodes for? You should be running, you should be running Death Guard, or you should be running Dreadnoughts, you should be running this, you should be running that." And at the end of the day. You've got to you've got to make a decision. You've got to back yourself, um, and ultimately, you need to you need to take stuff that that your team supports. Um, you you we, I've always been of the opinion that the list that you run are the property of the team, and you win as a team and you lose it as a team. There's no good after the event being like, oh, you know, we didn't perform as well because you know you chose to take whatever codex. Um, you know, or you know, we only we did good because, um, or we lost because you took Tau, or we won because I took um, Admech. It doesn't work like that. Um, you win or lose the event because you won more rounds than the other teams. Yeah, I completely agree. It's just having that team ethos is awesome, and I agree. Yeah, the game is becoming more and more diverse, which is you know absolutely fantastic. Which I think we sometimes forget. Um, there can often be criticism you know, oh, this is overpowered or whatever, but actually the game, gen- I mean, to hear that you guys took a thousand suns and went, you know, had five wins with that. Wh- when's that happened in the last five, six years? I mean, it's so rare. So it's nice to see all these different lists pop up. But, um, so Lockie, let's, let's, I want to say a massive thank you to both of you, first of all, for coming onto the show, um, as I think it's really been insightful and I think it's going to really help people get sort of stuck in with some team stuff. So Lockie, what would your be what would your advice be to somebody that's looking to start a team and getting amongst it with the team event side of things? Oh definitely, definitely give it a crack. Because that's what really drew me into playing 40K. I played one event, then the second event was a team event and ever since then I haven't looked back. It's been great fun. It's better winning as a team than by yourself. I live with the team aspect, the social aspect of the team. So 
I'd say just try, find a team, find a team event. Um, I don't know how prevalent they are around the world, um, different countries, but you can get involved, make your own team. Love it. Um, Pete, any final thoughts from you, mate? Um, reach out to your friends. Like most people, um, the 40K by nature is a game where you have to play with other human beings. Um, you don't often sit around playing with yourself. Sorry, Craig. Um, so ultimately, you know, re- reaching out, even if you have a group of people, I mean, it was one of the really awesome things we saw earlier in the year. We actually ran a coach event um, where uh, players from the West Australian ATC team all took um, all took charge of essentially a team of newcomers and we weren't playing. We were coaching um, and everyone took different things out of it. Some people were getting ready for their first ever team event. For some people, it was their first ever event full stop. For other people, it was, you know, they wanted more out of um, – more out of their 40k team events they wanted to learn more about pairing more about um you know how to match up how to score etc etc so it literally starts by asking the question because chances are there's someone either in your immediate circle or in the immediate vicinity of where you play that's actually pretty keen to to get involved in this sort of stuff um and you know you might not even know it until you go and ask the question yeah awesome well guys honestly thanks so much for coming on today um i'm sure we'll be having both of you back on in the very near future so yeah huge thanks for coming on the show um and i think you've really probably inspired a lot of people to um, actually get stuck in with some team events so massive thank you to you guys thank you to obviously all of our show sponsors as per usual and next we're going to be heading over to get some another battle ready tips with james from seed studio so we're going to head over to that segment next and We'll see you again, Pete and Lockie. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Dave. Cheers. So something that I know a lot of people struggle with is how do you know when a paint is thinned enough? Now, obviously on YouTube videos, you see people painting and they, they say thin your paints and you kind of see it, but it's very hard to like gauge how much water content is actually in there. Um, have you got any tips for our listeners from that one? First things first, like uh, I, I consider paint to be like people. They all have different personalities. So right from the get-go, just because it's a Citadel or line of paint or a Vallejo line of paint or a Scale 75 line of paint, uh, inherently every paint within that range does not have the same behavioral properties. So what I mean by that is some will dilute differently, some will have better coverage, some will be uh, a matte finish, satin finish, uh, some will uh, be super, super thin as a paint. Um, a good example is like within the Citadel range, Warpstone Glow is notorious for being a very difficult green to layer onto miniatures, um, but it's phenomenal for glazing. It's phenomenal for doing, uh, you know, different things uh, that, that require the paint to be subtly and incrementally added because it is so thin and it dilutes so well. Um, so to understand, obviously, the thinning of paint, one of the key things to understand is first and foremost, what your expectation is for the result of the color, whether you need it to be solid, whether you need it to be, um, whether you need it to be used as a tint or whether you, so choosing in color choices, as in the physical color that you use for an execution needs to have the, the, the understanding behind it of what am I actually using it for? So that's, we need that primarily before we even approach the thinning of it. But generally speaking, um, if you're looking to blocking color, which I think is a lot, uh, a lot of people struggle with obviously getting that, that consistency, it's a good thing to, to just on a palette. Um, I use two types of palettes. I use a wet palette and I also use a, uh, a round well palette that's got some wells in it. The good thing about a well palette is that you can take a, a little bit of paint from your mix and move it over the plastic on the wet on the wet oil palette and see if it covers quite well. If it's viscous, as in it moves, it's got a good movement to it, a body of 
of paint as in it moves it's very quite watery but it's still solid in color and it doesn't it doesn't it isn't you know transparent if that makes sense that's a good way to determine it especially if we're if we're painting and layering up uh multiple layers rather than trying to just cover it in one coat which I, i'd never be uh, advised to anyone to do i think you should use multiple layers always to get the, the best consistency and best quality of smooth execution of paint um generally speaking as an indicator that viscous body of paint which does move on the surface that you move the the, the body of paint on but it has solid coverage it is the kind of thing you're looking for um the, the generally the the slower it moves the more pigmentation it will have in it because obviously you haven't diluted it down very much um, and obviously the other end of the spectrum the more water you add into it or medium or whatever you're diluting with whether it's airbrush thinner or whatever um the more watery it is, the the, the, the less it's going to cover, if that makes sense. So you need to find that middle ground where it is viscous. It does move on the palette quite nicely, but you have control of it with the brush, but it does cover quite well. And that's kind of where you want to be. And that's a good determining factor to look for is that the viscosity of it. Yeah, that's brilliant. So let's say, for example, this is sometimes the worries I've had when I'm getting my layers down on a, on a model. Um, let's say I've gone for, I don't know, a, a gray primer. I'm using a red for my Blood Angels or something. If I thin my paints down enough, the first coat, what should I expect that model to look like? So I've put the red all on on all over because um, you've got this expectation in your head of what you want that red to look like. But with a thin down paint after that first coat, it's not going to look like how you finish it. So what can some of the expectations you can give people and then what sort of tips would you give them to the sort of persevere with that same thinness? The repetition is the key to success with it. Like you don't want to do, um, you don't want to do uh, one coat and try to, uh, you know, get the the, the the max saturation of the color if that makes sense. So one coat, just take the fist and red the color we we're talking about. Obviously with Blood Angels, you you will probably it'll probably look like a brownie red to start off with, especially over a black or a gray uh, a gray sort of undercoat um and then obviously with a second coat that that rich royal kind of red will then start to come through because you're laying layering up that pigmentation smoothly and effectively on the miniature um don't expect the first coat to be as saturated and be the exact color match for the color that you're using for the pot i think that's one of the key things to to, to sort of understand whether that's with a brush or whether that's with an airbrush um that if you're layering up and you've diluted enough that should be the result that you're kind of seeing brilliant no that's great thanks so much james and uh, we'll see you next week yeah just coming on see you next week bye so thanks, James, for your incredible tips, as always, on getting our models battle ready. So I've now got a listener question. And if you would like your question answered on the show, then all you need to do is become a member of our YouTube channel. So go over to the Vanguard Tactics on YouTube, become a member on any level whatsoever. You'll get instant access to our Vanguard Tactics membership Discord. And then every week I'll post in there, hey, you've got a question for the podcast and I'll pick one at random in which I feel like is suitable or maybe even a couple. So this one's from Ian. James and Ian said lots, um, lots of newer players in the academy um, and lots haven't done competition uh, or competitive events before. Uh, there's plenty of videos out there telling people what to bring but what would you tell them uh, as to what to expect to get the most from your first few events? So yeah this is a really interesting one and I think um, when you're going to a tournament your mindset has to be about learning, it has to be about evolving, it has to be about self-improvement and that's exactly what for me being competitive is all about is how do you get better today uh, so that tomorrow you can be better um, so then your next event you can improve upon. So rather than looking at like win losses, go with 
the, the first thing straight away should be, I'm going to go to a tournament and I'm going to try and make a new connection, make a friend, find somebody else in the Warhammer community that I can, you know, buddy up with to go to other events with, or even just say hi at the next one. So that's always key is how do you, first of all, just... Um, you know, get to know somebody, um, you know, and that, that should be the minimum expectation. From there on, you then want to start looking at your stats. So what you want to start to do is take your list, take your well-balanced rounded list and every single week try or every time you go to that tournament and every single game, try and improve your score. So first of all, um, look at scoring as many points as you can in each game on the primary. And then at the end of the uh, the end of the event, end of the competition, have a look at how many you scored averagely across those, you know, let's say it's an RTT, three game event, um, you know, take your average score for the primary. So let's say you had, you know, 20 points in one game, 30 in another, 40 in another game, take the average. Okay, I was scoring 30 points averagely on the primary. Great. So there's some numbers that you can improve on in your next tournament. Um, so then you can do the, exactly the same with the secondaries. So um, how many sec- secondaries you averagely scoring in each round. So then when you've got the, the time when you're playing with your friends at your local club, whatever it might be in between those, what you can then do is start to improve on your average scoring on the primary and then also the secondaries. Okay, so once you've done that, you can then go to the first, the third evolution, which is how many points is my opponent averagely scoring off me? And then can you improve on that score? And then finally, you do the same for their secondaries. So you take an average of their secondaries, what they're scoring against you. And then you can be really critical each and every time you go to compete or you go to a tournament. How can you improve? How can you score more points on the primary averagely for your tournament? How many po- how many average, you know, more points can you score on the secondary? And then how many points can you prevent your opponent from taking off you? That way, every single time you play, you have a target. It's not about winning or losing. It's about self-improvement. So that's something I would definitely, you know, tell most people. Expect to lose all your games for your first few events, but that's fine because providing you leave with some really, really good um, information that you can improve upon, then obviously you will become a better general. And if you want to improve even more, then check out our academy as we've got all the modules and a fantastic community to really help lesson by lesson take you through all this from developing your list to, you know, creating a mission um plan of action and being able to stick to that and then going through all the phases of the game to really make you a true commander of the game to really improve your confidence. So if that's something you're interested in, check out the Academy. We'd love to have you on there. And at the moment, we've got 50% off your first month as your trial. Um, So anyway, if you want to check out that, head over to www.vanguardtactics.com and you'll see the links to the Academy. So once again, thanks so much for all of our guests today. So thanks to Pete and Lockie and congratulations uh, to them for absolutely smashing out that team event this year. Um, And then also thanks to James, as always, for those painting tips. Um, And we'll see you next week on the Competitive 40K podcast. And in the meantime, if you do want to become a member and get your questions answered, head over to our Vanguard Tactics YouTube channel. We'll see you on our Tuesday night stream, seven o'clock every single Tuesday. We live stream a battle report for you. And then also, obviously, if you would like to leave us a review, it is always most appreciated over on Spotify or uh, iTunes, wherever you listen to us from. Um, And it really means a lot to us when we read those reviews from you. So thanks so much. And we'll see you next week on the Competitive 40K podcast.